I'm preaching topically, so first turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 15. And I'll be reading several more verses in chapter 7. And as I take you subsequently to three other groups of passages, just be ready to turn quickly with me. So, Acts chapter 6. We're going to be reading several highlights of Deacon Stephen's appearance before the Sanhedrin, the Council of Jewish Leaders. And then several verses in chapter 7. Be listening for evidence that Stephen was quite captivated by the glory of God. And first let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you give us your word. Your word has been informing our worship right along this morning. And now we have uh, time and uh, your invitation to soak ourselves some more in your word and be uh, taught by your word, be motivated by your word, and most of all, helped to see Christ, helped to hear his voice as he calls us to be his servants. Father, speak clearly. Help us see Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, that is Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now on to verses 30 through 33. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, that is Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. Just so you know, uh, Stephen has already referred to the stories of Abraham and Joseph, and now he moves on to the story of Moses. God appeared, an angel appeared to him, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And finally, verses 54 through 56. Now when they, the members of this council, heard these things from Stephen, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Like Stephen, we should be moved by a first motive for mission, having zeal for God's glory. If you love God, you will have a concern for God's glory. And as you obey God, you will grow in zeal for others to know God and his glory. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, was under fire. But his bigger issue was this. He was distressed at Israel's rejection of Christ. Stephen was willing to preach Christ at the risk of his life. And he became the first Christian martyr. 
his faith, his message, and his final vision just before dying all show that Stephen was captivated by the glory of God. Some think that Stephen's face is shining like that of an angel because like angels, at this moment he is conscious of living in God's presence. That's a good way to live, isn't it? To be aware no matter what we're doing, no matter where we are, I'm in the presence of God. That should make our face shine a little bit. Throughout his message, which starts in verse 2, he draws attention to God as the God of glory. Stephen speaks of Bible heroes tasting God's glory as he shares his glory with them. Abraham learns of God's glory through a great promise. Joseph learns of God's glory through suffering. And Moses, far from Egypt, learns of God's glory at a burning bush. Stephen shortly dies under a hail of stones, but he is strengthened in that very moment of greatest difficulty, strengthened by a vision of the glory of God and Christ, the Son of Man, standing beside the Father. Loving God is important, but loving God will lead us to have zeal for God's glory. That's because God's own primary goal, what would you say God's goal is? For everything he is and for everything he does, might it not be that God's goal is his own glory and that others would know it? And God's goal for us is to find his glory and our pleasure in him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question asks, what is the chief end or goal of man? The answer should still and still resound. Man's goal is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a big goal. It should impact our corporate worship. I'm glad that you sing from the Psalter. How often do the Psalms tell us to worship God because he's glorious? That should impact our family worship, our personal piety, and our whole life worship. We worship the God who will not share or yield his glory to another. If you carry the name of Christ, you are carrying the honor of Christ. And you want others to know his honor. Where do we get more motivation to know God's glory? and to help others to know God's glory. We get that from Christ. He came to glorify the Father in his life and death. He came to help us know the Father's glory. He's the one who wants others to know God's glory, thinking again of the members of the missions and outreach team. May God help you seek God's glory as the first goal of your work. And I encourage all of you to pray for your missions and outreach team. May God help all of us be moved by this holy motivation, having zeal for his glory, seeking to glorify him in all we do. Now, I admit, talking about the glory of God, having zeal for his glory, that's a pretty big goal, and sometimes it can seem pretty nebulous. Probably none of us have seen a burning bush. Hopefully none of us have had to go through the suffering that Joseph had to go through to better appreciate the glory of God.
We have to work at seeing the glory of God in unexpected places. But that will lead us to a second motivation. Now we turn to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. In the first verse of chapter 10, we're going to hear Paul called by God to preach the gospel. Though known as the apostle to the Gentiles, he still cares about his own people. Listen to the intensity of Paul's burden for lost Jews, his kingdom, his kinsmen. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This second motivation comes from getting to know people who are without Christ. Romans 9, verse 2 shows how serious Paul is about people who do not know Christ. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This burden strikes him to his very core and affects his entire being. Verse 3, I had to puzzle about that and go look at some commentaries. As Paul writes, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off, that's completely cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I agree with one commentator who put it this way. It seems Paul is saying, if this were possible, I could wish to be separated from Christ for the sake of these others. But of course, I realize this is impossible. He just wrote chapter 8 where he says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So he's imagining something that's not possible, but that strengthens his, makes his anguish greater because he realizes he himself can't do anything. This is a matter of God's sovereignty. But where does Paul get this burden? He got it from Jesus. From the moment he was called by Christ, Christ gave him a burden to reach out to lost Jews and eventually lost Gentiles. The second motivation to get close to people and realize that when they are lost, they are really lost and far away in darkness. This corresponds to the second half of the great commandment, right? When somebody asked Christ, what, how do you summarize the commandments? He said, love God and love your neighbor. If we love God, we're going to have a passion for his glory. If we love our neighbors, what's that supposed to look like? We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We know that the parable of the Good Samaritan given by Jesus radically expands the definition of who is our neighbor, not just somebody living beside us, but somebody we come alongside of in a road or in a situation of difficulty. How can we love neighbors who need to know Jesus? Only Jesus can give us that love. How can we show uh, more of this? But go back to, uh, to Paul. 
After the reflections in chapter 9 on God's election and rejection, his wrath and his mercy, Paul returns to this existential burden for his Jewish kinsmen. In verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We should never under, underestimate the power of believing, prevailing prayer. Gail, to the Sunday school class, described our anguish when far away from the church in France that we ministered to, we got news that a dear young man in the congregation, a believer, had tried to take his own life and went into a coma and days later did die. We felt helpless. All we could do was pray. Shame on us for having that reaction, oh wow, all I can do is pray. That's the best thing we can do. So when you're thinking about God's call to you to think about people far away from Christ, people who are lost, even neighbors that you don't know what their situation is, the first thing to do is pray. The next thing to do is pray, etc., etc., etc. Persisting prayer will motivate and fuel our continuing efforts to love our neighbors, to get to know them and their needs. You may be an introvert and find that talking about God to unbelievers is really difficult. I would recommend that you try simple hospitality. But when I talk about hospitality to others and to myself, I actually discover that other people, and too often myself, have this reaction. I'm not very good at hospitality. I've got my own little life in my home. I'd rather talk to people where I meet them out in the world. Well, if hospitality does not come easily to you, go back to praying for your lost neighbors and pray that God would open you up to the radical possibility of inviting somebody you know into your home. Or maybe it'll be a little easier in the summer when you're having a cookout. But here's the thing. When you look at Jesus and his ministry, he's all about hospitality. He's doing hospitality even when he's invited into somebody else's home. Jesus can give you a burden to respond to the second motivation to love your neighbors. Look at his ministry for examples of his hospitality and ask Jesus to teach you. Ask Jesus to help you be more hospitable. And if you need to be further convicted about radical hospitality that is still simple, try reading the latest book from Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. This is the woman who was mired in, in an academic life of being a radical feminist, uh, a lesbian, and somehow God connected her to a pastor and his wife, I think in Syracuse, New York, and over two years of simple, prevailing, non-conditional, unconditional hospitality, they wooed her, and the Holy Spirit brought her to Christ. And since being married to a pastor, the Lord has taught her how to do simple, radical hospitality. 
Rosario Butterfield, the gospel comes with a house key. Have you ever gone on a short missions trip? Does your church sometimes send teams? Okay, a good aim for your prayers. One of the biggest challenges of a short mission trip is this. You usually are ministering to strangers and you don't have much time to get to know them. Like when I was a, a chaplain and had to make daily visits to strangers in a hospital when I heard about the family you're supporting with little Charlie in the NICU. Wow, that was hard to be a chaplain going to a, a family in a crisis situation, not know them at all. I had to listen, I had to pay attention, I had to wait for an opportunity to say something of comfort. And that takes a lot of patience. That's the way, it's on a, that's the way it is on a short mission trip. You, you, you go with lots of energy to do a lot of stuff and you have to wait until you can do it. You have to listen to what you're supposed to do. You have to observe. It's not easy and you'll feel overwhelmed by all the needs you see around you. You're only ministering to the, the, the surface of those needs and you see all those needs and you come back and you're overwhelmed. It's the same here when you get in touch with the needs of your neighbors. It becomes the nitty gritty work of finding out, wow, they're sinners just like me and they've had some time to be sinners without the grace of God. It's messy finding out about their lives. Trying to be obedient to God's call to minister his love to other people, you learn the needs of others, sometimes big needs, and you want to start helping to be being obedient until you get overwhelmed or you fail or your service is rebuffed or your efforts seem inadequate and you can feel devastated. If you follow Paul's example, you pray in near desperation, but like Paul, you may be surprised how God answers your prayer of desperation. We go to our third motivation in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 10. When you are seeking to glorify God, remember being captivated by his glory like Stephen is the first and biggest motivation to reach out to others. We've seen how a second motivation comes from the command to love your neighbor. And that means taking time like Paul to know the needs of people close to you, but far from Christ. Like Paul, you will find yourself colliding with a seeming obstacle that becomes, by the grace of God, a motivation. The third motivation if you take this obstacle that you're going to find in your own heart, if you take that obstacle to Christ, listen to Paul's experience of this tension in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he saw some glory of God in these revelations, did Paul. But he discovered that a thorn had been given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, probably over some time, I might add, that it should leave me. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
I'll repeat that. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul had received revelations. He had special glimpses of God's glory. Paul was a traveling preacher and teacher, and as he did ministry, he collided with people's needs. He wanted to be as effective as possible, but he discovered a problem had come into his life. A thorn, some kind of obstacle, was keeping him from being more effective. He prayed to God to remove the thorn. We don't know what it was, but many think it was something like a speech problem or maybe a dis disability. I even found uh, some thought he maybe was having migraines. Irenaeus, a church father back in the second or third century, wondered if Paul was having bad headaches. Any of these explanations could have been perceived by others and by Paul as limiting his effectiveness. If you have crippling migraines, you know you can't do much of anything. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had that. He prayed three times and God answered him in an unexpected way. Paul, you are fine just the way you are. I prefer to use you just the way you are. I'm not going to answer your prayer in the way you want it answered. You know, truth about God and the gospel and the Christian life is full of seeming contradictions. Christ had to be humiliated before he was glorified. We have to be humble like little children to see the kingdom. The first will be last and the last shall be first. Contradictions. Hard to understand contradictory truth. When we are weak, maybe even helpless, could it be that we are in the best position for God to use us? That's what God told Paul. This may be the most counterintuitive nugget of truth we can uncover this morning, especially for can-do Americans. You don't tell Americans, you can't do this. You can't have this prayer answered the way you want it. You can't take away your weakness. Look at the industry of self-help, books, and counseling. Anything and everything to get away from a weakness. Is it possible that God would say to us, to us, I can best use you right where you are with your weaknesses. When I am weak, then I am strong. This third motivation, I can assure you, is especially uncomfortable for missionaries, and church leaders, and capable, experienced Christians. Keep in mind, when Paul wrote this, he was describing a situation 15 to 20 years after his conversion, when he thought he was a great missionary, and church planter, and preacher, who could write great letters to people. Imagine how stunned he was to realize that God wanted him to stay right the way he was with that thorn in his flesh. Like Paul, many of us are eager to bring our experience to bear in ministry situations. God has given us such insights for specific 
opportunities and callings, we train and we get equipped and we feel responsible to use our gifts for others. But if we are blind to our weaknesses, we will be less useful to Christ when the Holy Spirit shows us our weaknesses, often through another believer, we get defensive. We want to deny it or secretly try to figure out how we can get rid of that weakness. If we don't take that weakness to Christ and let that weakness open us up again to receive new grace from Christ, we will be less useful to him and less useful in our mission. Believe it or not, I was more fearful anticipating the challenges of parenting than when I got married and knew that I wasn't really ready to lay down my life for my spouse as Christ laid down, laid down his life. I was scared bow-legged at the thought of raising one, then two and three, we had twins, and then four children. That's a very scary thing to be responsible for raising children, not just to be adjusted human beings, but most especially to know Christ. And now that we are seeing two of our married children dealing with the challenges and stresses of raising young children, I am newly struck by how daunting it is to be a parent. I want to apply this third motivation to those of you who are active in parenting, especially you moms who spend more time in the trenches than most dads. Mothers, your mission is to work with your husbands to raise your children to know Christ including helping them to begin glorifying him and enjoying him. But that's tough work. You get discouraged potentially every week, many days. If anyone knows weakness, it is a Christian mother who knows she can't alone shape her child's behavior, much less the heart. Moms, may God give you grace to know and accept your weaknesses. And to even give glory, boast in your weaknesses. Imagine that, but that's what Paul heard from Christ. Boast in your weaknesses, moms, as you take them to Christ and ask him to show his power in the midst of your weaknesses. And the same goes for singles. How many singles are here? How many of you are not married and you're old enough that you're beginning to imagine being married? I see a few. Maybe a few that are too bashful to raise their hands. I find our churches are tough places for singles. We're so oriented to families, so oriented to couples, so much that we forget how lonely it can be to be a Christian single. Singles, take your weakness and periodic loneliness and frustrations to Christ and ask him to show his glory and grace right where you are. We finish with a fourth motivation, being united to Christ. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to see that God wants us to understand that being united with Christ means being sent as he was sent. Listen to these words of Jesus first in John chapter 17, verses 18 and 20 to 23. John 17, verse 18. Jesus is praying to the Father in the presence and praying with the disciples. 
As you sent me, Father, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly ones, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And then turning to chapter 20, after Jesus is risen, speaking to the disciples, possibly in that same upper room, John 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You should recognize that as a repetition from his prayer. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe these verses give John's version of the Great Commission, both during his prayer, before his death, and after his resurrection. But we notice that there's less emphasis on what the, child, uh, the, the disciples are to do. No talk about uh, making disciples, baptizing them, etc. There's not a contradiction here, but the, the, the repeated charge to be sent as Jesus was sent is a high calling. You'll remember that throughout the prayer of John 17, Jesus is praying about his closeness to the Father. He's anticipating glorifying the Father through his suffering and his death. Again, a different way than we think of glory. But his suffering and death was part of his glory. John says the, the greatest glory that Jesus gave to us. He's determined throughout his prayer to finish his own calling, to give eternal life to those the Father have given to him. We are close to the heart of God as expressed in the prayerful communica- communion of the Father with the Son. We're also getting to the heart of Jesus for the mission of his church. But notice, he's not, throughout this prayer, he's not emphasizing what we are to do. He's concentrating on relationships, the unity among disciples, and the unity that we're supposed to have with the Godhead. It's all intended to help the world believe that the Father has sent the Son as we mirror the love and glory of God. I believe Jesus in prayer. And Jesus, when he gave that first deposit of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, he's telling us about our fourth motivation. Beneath and underneath the earlier motivations we've looked at, the motivation to seek God's glory, the motivation we'll have when we seek to love our neighbors, and the motivation that comes when we take our our weaknesses to Christ so that he will help us minister out of our weakness by depending on Christ. In all of that, we need to be sure we are dwelling in Christ. We need to appreciate our union in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, often shorthanded by theologians by the phrase, our union with Christ. We, We know that we're united with Christ in our heads, but often we don't live like it. It's not always overflowing from our hearts. 
in disobedience, laziness, or failure to follow through, we can block the overflow of our union with Christ. When we disobey, his love and his mercy will flow much less to others. But make no mistake, if you are united to Christ by even that mustard seed of faith, he is giving you mercy and love, and it's supposed to be overflowing. It is meant for those who are far from Christ. In the church these days, we talk a lot about mentors. For whatever mission God has given us, glorifying him as a single, as a married couple, as a single parent, as a student or as a worker, it's really helpful to spend some time with a mentor whose example you can follow. As Gail and I have just recently left what could be called residential cross-cultural missions in France, we want to be available as a resource, even as mentors, for individuals and couples who want to be missionaries in the future. But I hope I'll never tell such people, go as I went, follow my example. No human mentor can give people the power or the grace, let alone the redemption, to transform their weaknesses and failures. I can't give that to future missionaries. Your pastor can't give that or your elders can't give that to people in the church. In your small groups or your prayer groups or whenever you're together, you're not supposed to be pointing people to your example. You're supposed to be pointing them back to Christ who was sent in humiliation. If we're supposed to be sent as Christ was sent, let me close in reminding you how he was sent. He was sent in humiliation. He was sent with a mandate to get close to people. Christ was holy and perfect. We can't imagine what inner reaction he had when he rubbed shoulders with sinners and saw how little worship there was being given to God, but he kept getting back next to those sinners. And he enjoyed his time with awful sinners. What an example for us. He was sent as a servant, laying aside his prerogatives. He was sent to show people the Father, sent to glorify the Father, sent to do the Father's will. How can you fulfill your mission to God, your mission from God? Get closer to Jesus. How can you have godly motivations for sticking with that mission when it gets hard, when you fail? Deepen your sense of being united to Jesus in his consecrated humanity, in his death on the cross. We're going to be having a visual and a taste reminder of what Christ did to help us get closer to God and stay close to God. Be ready to die daily. Be ready to pray harder. And remember God's amazing promise given to the disciples in the upper room, and I know the Holy Spirit brought this back to their mind after his death and his resurrection, but when Jesus was confident of the mercy and power that would flow from his own death and resurrection and his own glorification being taken back to heaven, Jesus gave these words to them, and I believe they are words for you and your church. 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Greater works than these will my church do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. May God give to Trinity Church the power and the grace to believe that promise and glorify God in all you say and do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even more, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we see throughout your word. Lord, help us see him. Help us, through him, learn more about God's glory, about our mandate to love our neighbors. Help us acknowledge that we have weaknesses and accept them as the very crucible where you're going to teach us more about depending on you. Help us to be sent as Jesus was sent. We pray in his name. Amen.